The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody here today. And I'd like to thank <laughs> Shelley. Some of you were here last week, and Shelley Graff, who was sitting here a moment ago, had to take care of some business uh, taught. I don't know if people realize, but Shelley, who's been around the center and a paid staff person for a while now, uh, has been promoted to our associate director and uh, the other staff teachers. So both Shelley and I are now staff teachers at Common Ground. And uh, here she comes. <laughs> See if we can make her blush. <laughs> <laughs> it's not working, you're not blushing. <laughs> anyway, it's really great to have um, Shelley stepping up. And some of you know this, but in case you don't, uh, last August, well, it actually happened a while back, but starting in August, Shelley began a four-year teacher training program with sort of our grandmother institution in Massachusetts, uh, the Insight Meditation Society. It's been around since 1975. And Jack Hornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein started that place along with a few other folks. And they do a four-year teacher training every five or six years. And so this next one, Shelley will be doing it with about 25 other people, 20 other people. And... Uh, has already started assisting in residential retreat teaching and, of course, over the years has been doing more and more teaching here at the center. So we're, I'm especially, but I think the community generally, really looking forward, very appreciative of Shelley digging in deeply here at the center and we're really fortunate to have her wisdom sort of right in the middle of things here. And Shelley's also teaching some of the Wednesday night practice groups regularly so you can catch her. And if you don't come on Wednesday nights, you can always listen to the talks on Dharma Seed where we keep all of our recorded talks of anybody who teaches at the center get up here, get, up, get put up there. And so both Shelley and I, we're working through Guy Armstrong's book as sort of a backdrop to the teachings we're giving. And this is the book, Emptiness, A Practical Guide for Meditators. It's available for 20% off at Moon Palace Books, a wonderful independent bookstore not too far, just a little south of here, Moon Palace Books. And we're on Chapter 8, and that chapter, I think Guy titles it Bearing Emptiness. So last, or last time I spoke two weeks ago, um, I talked about, and Guy mentions in that chapter, just gateways to experiencing or deepening the insight into emptiness. And remember, emptiness isn't something. Emptiness means recognizing the way it is, and in particular, recognizing that what's here in any moment of experience is empty of anything other than what's being known in that moment. And I know that sounds a little trippy to say that, but what you'll start to recognize as you're more honest about your experience is the mind is always presuming there's much more here in the present moment than is here in the present moment. And in the short way of getting that is we basically believe our story about what's happening as opposed to trust our direct 
experiencing in the moment. So like this moment, which we're all having, of course, different for each of us, this moment is just this being known. It's not more than this. Like if you think you are a male or a female or some other sort of gender identity, then that's a thought being known. It doesn't refer back to anything other than what's directly being experienced or known in the moment. So we're learning to trust, for the mind to trust less and be dependent less on our thoughts about things, the conceptual meaning the thinking mind constructs, and more dependent, more trusting, more opening to the very simple basic reality this is being known. So we're trusting the present moment and letting go of what meaning, conceptual meaning the mind constructs. We're not trying to stop the mind from constructing conceptual meaning. It has a role to play, especially in terms of connecting with other people. That's sort of the bridge we use to connect with each other. I construct some conceptual meaning. You hear that and construct some conceptual meaning related to what I just said, right? And we try to build a bridge where we feel like we can connect. That's what we human beings do with each other. And oftentimes how we you know, create conflict with each other. But as a spiritual being or as a, a human being interested in understanding and aligning more with the truth of things, we don't want to be confused by that social mechanism that we use of constructing meaning. We want to be able to abide in a more simple way. Oh, this is being known. It's like this now. Not in terms of the thought we have, but in terms of that direct experience. So that's how we use, we're using the word empty. So just to review uh, what was covered in Chapter 7, we talked about the last few weeks, there's some gateways to developing this insight. These are very traditional Buddhist teachings. You hear them a lot from different angles. The first gateway to deepening insight into emptiness is to reflect on what we call the three characteristics. The most predominant, obvious of them, is the truth that things are changing. And so if you want to see that this moment is empty of anything other than this is being known, just start noticing everything changing. Like whatever you were doing before you came here, that's gone. Saturday's gone. You know, my 50s are almost gone. (laughs) 40s are definitely gone. 30s, 20s, teens, all gone. They don't exist anywhere. And even the thoughts or memories I have, They come, those thoughts, and they go. So there's really no place for the past. It's gone. And even the beginning, when we did the chant and the sit that we did together and the beginning of the talk and all that I said about Shelley, gone. Right? doesn't exist anymore, anywhere. And we can regurgitate some memory of that, but that's something being known now and it will quickly be gone. Again, disappear. So by tuning in to this very simple truth, this is nothing magical or unusual. We all kind of know intellectually that things are changing. But to start to pay attention to the sand through the fingers aspect of our reality really changes 
how the mind relates to the conceptual meaning thinking creates. Because it's only our thoughts, the construction of thought or conceptual meaning, that creates the idea of permanence. Permanence never existed. But when I say me, like that's a conceptual meaning, or I tell a story, I spent some time telling you my background, it feels like a real edifice. That's me. That's my life. That's what's happened to me. That's who I am. So the story kind of paints a picture of substance as if there's a permanent me or mark there. But in terms of the direct experiencing we do in life, there is no none of that permanent me there. It's a very, whatever the me is, I mean, we, it's okay to call it self or me as long as we understand it's a fluid changing process. It doesn't really ever become a thing. It's never really a noun as we imagine it is. So this is just a gateway to the deepening of insight, and in particular the insight, the liberating insight into, when Buddhism we say dharma or dhamma, the way it is, right? the empty nature, the unsatisfactory, the impersonal nature. So this is one gateway. A more simple gateway that I think we all understand already is just practicing living in a way that develops calm and, and basically valuing calm, valuing a settled, peaceful, tranquil mind. Because w- only then, when we have some tranquility, some calm, we notice the pervasive restlessness of our mind and our culture because of selfing. Right? Selfing, all the self-centered dramas, that's restlessness. So when we're feeling chilled out, I mean, just calm in a regular sense. It doesn't have to be special calm, Buddhist calm, just feeling settled. And then when you start to neurotically, restlessly need chocolate or need to check your emails or need to send a text, then that selfing, that self-centered activity, that needing to do, there's a me that needs to do something, as a contrast to the calm, stands out. So then, from the point of view of calm, awareness sees the restless activity, sees the selfing activity as not me, but just an impersonal process, right? So then the self is seen as something happening in the present moment, something being known in the present moment. Not me, not some permanent edifice me, but just as an activity. Oh yeah, that's just that personality pattern of needing to check my email or needing to check the news or needing to connect with this person or needing to fulfill that desire to have chocolate or you know, whatever it might be. The mind, because of the contrast of calm, can observe the restless pattern as a natural system that has roots, causes, and conditions is manifesting, expressing itself as emotion and thought and physical activity. But all that can be better seen as a natural phenomena, not me. Yeah, there is this pattern of feeling compelled to go to the co-op and get chocolate. And it feels like this, it looks like this, 
and its nature, not self. And even the part of the mind that says, no, 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 that's me, right? I want chocolate. Wisdom can always, the calm of wisdom can always step back and go, yeah, that's part of the pattern. Thinking that it's personal, thinking that I need to do that in order to be happy is part of that impersonal pattern. The fact that the mind personalizes it is part of that impersonal pattern. Oh, yeah. We can't really do that when we're not calm. Because when I'm identified with the restless activity of my mind, then other restless activity doesn't stand out as distinct, right? It doesn't catch the attention of wisdom. Oh, that's interesting. What's that ripple? What's that restless activity? Oh, that's just a natural process. You don't, we don't do that when the mind is restless. We only do that, and, and in a way, in a funny way, being calm in a world like this is as radical an intervention as anything a human being can do. Because all of a sudden you get to start seeing more clearly what we can't see when we're all revved up about this and that, reacting to this and that, being triggered by this and that. So don't assume, like some people sometimes do that, being calm is a way of disengaging. Being calm can be a powerful, radical act of engagement because it allows the mind to see things differently when we show up in all the places we show up in the world from this place with this place of calm. And then the third gateway in this chapter 7 is really looking at um, the unification of mind. So it's in a way, it's a further development of calm. And you can think of the mind becoming one-pointed because of it's really interested, so the purity of investigation, or the mind becoming one-pointed because it's really concentrated, really tuning into an inner stillness, an inner peace of mind. Or really unified because of like the meditation we did today, a strong feeling of love. And the thing about a unified mind, like a good definition of that, is when every, see we think of the mind as one thing, but the mind is really many, many different coexisting patterns, all happening at the same time, right? But when all of those patterns are in alignment, all serving the same purpose, like you get really, because of what I said earlier, you get really interested in impermanence. Get really curious in a very wholesome way about impermanence. Not thinking about it, but a little bit of thinking, but mostly directly looking at your experience moment to moment. And everything, every aspect of the mind is on board for this investigation. There's no like, oh, I want to think about this movie I saw yesterday. Because the mind immediately turns that into that investigation. Oh, that's a thought that arises and goes, comes and goes, right? So when the mind is harmonious in that way, where every aspect of the mind is in alignment with the same purpose, whether the purpose is investigation or the purpose is um, secluding into stillness, into peace, or unifying with love, kind of, absorbing in the quality of universal love or compassion. But because of the unification of the mind, 
there's really no room for the mind to be self-centered or neurotic. So when the neurotic activity inevitably arises, it stands out because it's distinct from the unification of the mind with the investigation or with the peacefulness or with the universal quality of love, right? So when the mind is wholly doing that, it's the same thing like if you're an artist or a sports person and you golf or you play basketball or you dance or you know whatever your thing is and you and you've learned to do that with a unified mind a unif- uh, kind of totality absorption in the zone you know whatever word you use then when you start to get neurotic and doubt yourself or wonder if they're noticing people will like what you're doing if you're going to win the match or whatever then that really stands out like it shows up almost as a red flag because it's so distinct that from the moment before when the mind was completely absorbed in the activity, right? So this is another gateway into emptiness. If you have avenues in your life where you can absorb yourself, the mind gets completely unified in the activity, whatever it is, and then when the mind loses that unification, that's a really good time to see the neurotic, the selfing, self-centered activity as being empty, not referring back to anybody. It's just what it is. It's just that personality pattern arising because of momentum, right? And it's just that being known. That's a gateway into emptiness. And it's interesting that these gateways to emptiness often have to do with seeing that self-centered activity, selfing, is just something being known. Not letting, not trying to stop the neurotic activity, but seeing it for what it is. But when we're, like I said earlier, when we're always or often absorbed in neurotic activity, the next round of neurotic activity is not going to stand out. We'll just get identified with it and run with it, right? But so these are moments when we naturally are free from neurotic activity and the contrast allows for seeing, oh, that neurotic activity of worrying whether I'm going to win the basketball game, that's just that. It's just that being known. It's not more than that. Of that activity, that thought doesn't refer back to somebody who's actually worried. There's the feeling, you know, the tension in the body, the unpleasant tension of being worried. There's the content, the image, the conceptual image of me losing and what that will look like or feel like. And that's being known and there's nothing else. There's not the presumption, the idea that it, there's me who's going to lose. And that could be seen. Now, we get it intellectually, hopefully, hearing these kinds of words. But the actual experience is life-changing. I mean, in little doses, it's really a little seismic shift in the mind's understanding. Every time the mind realizes in little bits and pieces that there isn't anything behind. There isn't anything back there to whom this life refers. And this is where the fearlessness that I mentioned at the end of the guided meditation today comes from, whether it's 
initiated by a universal quality of love or a deepening of insight. The reason human beings become fearless isn't because they tell themselves there's nothing to be afraid of. It's because they directly realize they don't have anybody to protect. They can be good, compassionate, engaged, fearless, loving, appreciative, precisely because self-protection, self-centered, neurotic activity is seen to be empty. So then what's left for life? And this is really what chapter 8 is about, and I'll talk about this next Sunday as well. Next couple Sundays probably. Um, We will meet Christmas Eve, by the way, in the morning, but not in the evening program, uh, Sunday the 24th. So for the next two Sundays, we'll look at this, uh, like when we realize the emptiness, it can initially, from an intellectual self-point of view, if I'm not involved in self-protection, if I'm not involved in getting ahead, or even me becoming a loving person, me becoming a wise person, what the heck am I going to do with this life? And it can feel sometimes really scary to sort of lose that framing around self, around me, framing my life around me and mine. So my family, that's also part of the self, me and mine. It can feel terrifying and scary. It can feel kind of flat and empty. So what's the point? Nihilistic. Or now I can be bad because it doesn't matter. Right? which is, of course, just a self-view. Who would want to be bad? Right. So this is why the practice is so emphasized, because when we practice, we notice this deepening tenderness, this deepening re- engagement, responsivity. And if you're not noticing that, like over the course of your practice, that you're able, the heart, able, the mind, the heart, mind, body, this life is more willing and able of showing up, less afraid of engagement, less afraid of messiness in life, less afraid of the joys in life, appreciating the joys in life, less afraid of life. If you're not noticing that, because the whole point is being liberated, being free in the very real life we're living. Not like free later when we're in heaven or free later when we're awake or enlightened, but are, is the practice leading to more freedom, freedom to engage, freedom to respond, freedom to show up in with this personality, with these circumstances in the world we live in. And if we're not seeing that, then it's really appropriate to ask ourselves, well, that's interesting. You know, I'm feeling less able to show up, less able to respond. And and then it's good because there may be a place for some correction in how we're practicing or how we're understanding the practice. Because there's this two pieces to awakening. One is greater sensitivity. So if all we're getting is greater, that part of the practice where we're more sensitive to 
what it feels like to be a human being, to suffering, to the meanness in the world. If all we're getting is sensitivity, then we're really going to emphasize seclusion, like get me out of here. Get me to a quiet place, a peaceful place, a protected place. I can't be around that situation. And you see this. This is, uh, we all see this, people who hang out in Buddhist circles where people are doing a lot of the practices, like being aware, developing awareness. So they become really sensitive. But the wisdom part of the practice hasn't caught up to the increasing sensitivity part of the practice. So we need both. And if all you're doing is increasing wisdom, then you go around bothering people and you say, hey, don't be attached, it's all empty. <laughs> and everybody wants to like hit you. <laughs> you know, especially the people who are suffering or who you know, have been oppressed for generations. You know, and then you say, it's empty. You know? It's not happening to anybody. And it's really kind of violence to say that <coughs> when you're not coming from a place of sensitivity where your heart <coughs> is actually breaking open with the reality of suffering. So we need both to be a spiritual seeker. And generally speaking, we all come into our practice with one being stronger than the other, right? Where we're, we tend to really get on an intellectual level where the practice is going, really get the sort of intellectual piece that, you know what, it's true. It's just this being known. There isn't, this doesn't refer back to anything. So what's the problem, right? So for some people that comes more easily and the insights start there, the deepening of understanding starts there. But hopefully if they're practicing correctly, then they'll start there. You know, it's like Ajahn Chah says, if you haven't had a couple of really good cries in your practice, your practice hasn't really begun. Right? And this is especially true, or stereotypically true for people who identify as male. Because for those people with that kind of, and we have, we have both, of course, energies, the masculine and the feminine, regardless of how we identify with gender, they need both of those tendencies need to come into balance in our heart and mind. And so the tendency to sort of abstract the world can be very useful because it allows the mind to go, to sort of step out of conditioning. But then it has to get integrated with connection, with feeling, with uh, exposure, with sensitivity. And the other, sort of the more feminine side, which is receptive, that part of practice that's about receptivity, and sensitivity, some people really lead with this in practice. And then they need to know, how can I trust this sensitivity without reverting to reactivity or some fixed view? How can I stay open with the exposure? And that's where the wisdom piece comes in. And so in chapter 8, for those who are reading along or for those who are going to be coming to the talks the next few weeks, we're going to look at Compassion, of course, is front and center because if we really understand compassion, what an enlivening and protecting and beautiful emotion it is, we really understand this marriage of wisdom and sensitivity because there's no compassion without wisdom. 
Because compassion is a beautiful emotion, but it arises precisely because the heart is willing to be exposed to the reality of suffering. Not pretending suffering's not suffering. What allows this heart, this mind, this life, what allows us to be intimate, undefended with suffering? And we can start, and we should, if we're interested in this, look at those places in our lives where we have our own suffering or we're around other people whose suffering is obvious to us and practice leaning in, opening up, not trying to fix it. I mean, that will happen next. That's the next moment. But the first moment is a moment of not being afraid that this friend of ours is suffering, that this person or people we care about are breaking up and they don't know what's going to happen in their life or that they have financial insecurity, or they have cancer, or I have cancer, or I'm losing my job, or you know, I have this racial conditioning that I'm afraid of, right? When I look honestly, what the heck am I gonna do about what makes up this personality, the biases that are here? So when we start to look at these ordinary, real places of suffering in our lives, then we can really experiment with compassion. Well, the Buddha says there's an emotional, there's an emotion, there's a way of being close, relating, that on the one hand is enlivening and liberating, and on the other hand requires exposure to exactly what I don't want to feel and see and be exposed to. So instead of seeing this as the sort of burden, oh, I've got to open to this, we see it as something, it's like a privilege, we get to open to this, and it's liberating. It isn't easy, but it's liberating to open to suffering because of this marriage of wisdom and sensitivity. And that's really a beautiful definition of the awakening, right? The awakening or the liberation is, uh, it's, the freedom to be sensitive, right? It's like being sensitive and free at the same time, seeing clearly and being free at the same time, responding, giving our life away and feeling free at the same time, feeling enlivened at the same time. And it's actually good to have some humility, like to not know what the heck the Buddha's pointing to. Because what generally gets in the way is we think we know what the Buddha is pointing to, and then we imitate it instead of realizing it in a more direct way. So we pretend to be equanimous, so we pretend to care, or we pretend to be awake, instead of w- realizing we don't really know what it is to be free and intimate. And that's really interesting, right? Because then we're a real beginner. And there's a lot of juice in our practice. And then we're willing to do the work of practice because it's mis- a mystery. And we're not sort of, it re- when it starts to feel dead, it's when our practice has become mostly a way of imitating what we think, who we think we should be. Because that always feels flat as a spiritual practice. And <clears throat> when we're really practicing, we become a little bit magnetic in the sense that we like being around ourselves and other people find what we're doing interesting, whether they know it or not. 
And when other people, when we're not interested in being around ourselves <laughs> and nobody else seems to be that interested, it's because it's more of an, an imitation, like of trying to be a good Christian or a good Muslim or a good Buddhist or a good secular humanist or whatever we might consider ourselves to be. So I'll leave it here. <coughs> the children will be here in just a few minutes. Uh, but there's time for one or two comments from your practice that you'd like to share. Yeah, please, Raha. Second row of chairs there. Could you speak to the fact that um, I understand this concept of self and no self, and not that I understand it, but I intellectually get it. But at the same time, I tend to think when people are, like you label them with extrovert, introvert, that is <coughs> more... It's a more personality trait that is uh, sticking to that person. It's like I have seen people change within 10 years, but still if there is no self that carries from one moment to another, it's hard to understand then how, how would the trait of extrovertness sticks to somebody? Or how can I label myself introvert or extrovert? Yeah, and we can confirm, we can answer that question directly in our practice to see how habit or just doing something once makes it easier to do it twice. And then if we do it regularly, it becomes kind of the groove gets deeper and eventually it becomes who we are. We're the person who thinks that way. We're the person that when I walk in the room, I do this thing. And it becomes part of our character just because of repetition. So the, and the thing is, we can break those patterns in the same way that anything that gets constructed can get deconstructed. So if we have a real strength towards receptivity and sensitivity, we don't need to deconstruct that. We just need to, because there's something in its root very good about that. We just need to bring it into balance. Or so if we're somebody who can kind of step back Right, understands that we can abstract, we can step back, that it's just this, and use that to kind of investigate, not be trapped by patterns. Right? We don't need to deconstruct that even. We just need to say, well, if you can do it now, then do it with a little bit more sensitivity, and then a little bit more sense, a little bit more exposure, a little bit more vulnerability, right? A little bit more overwhelm. Because when you add sensitivity to that pattern it really matures in a beautiful way just like when you add wisdom to sensitivity it matures in a beautiful way so it's really understanding that these patterns that make up our personality it's like how to work with them how to see how they can be turned in the direction of freedom used for freedom from deeper love and wisdom it has to be quick though the children are at the door so okay, just, just share, uh, I won't be able to respond. Okay, I was just wondering, um, I have both of those, mainly wisdom. Well, not real wisdom, but you get the idea. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes... John was a philosophy professor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and sometimes sensitivity, but they don't show up at the same time. Yeah. But you're noticing that. And just noticing that we have those two potentialities, that's the start. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org.